This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of five, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, a practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. In this episode, I am going to be interviewing Farnoosh Torabi, who is a personal finance expert and is also the author of the brand new book, Healthy State of Panic. She's broadening her subject matter with this book, looking at how Our fears and the things that we are feeling trepidation about can be a clue to how we should live our lives, Um, that this is something we can look into and get to know more about ourselves. And rather than this, like, no fear whatsoever kind of ridiculousness, um, you know, actually, there's a good place for, for this. And it's a healthy state of panic, I guess, is how she would put it. So we're looking forward to that interview. But Sarah, do you follow any personal finance type people? I'm, you know, we could share some of our favorites on this episode. Yeah, podcast wise, I have a fair number of slightly financial themed. I love How to Money, which we've had those guys on our podcast before. I especially love their Friday episodes where they just go through like news in the financial sphere and just kind of talk about it. They have a really nice rapport. And I love Planet Money and The Indicator, which is kind of like a subset of Planet Money. 
And it's funny because like I wouldn't have thought those would be interesting topics. And yet almost every episode is like fascinating in some way, shape or form. So those are like my biggest financial podcast, I would say. And then I think we both really enjoy the Frugal Girls blog, who we've also had on the podcast. Yeah, she has an awesome blog. Anyone who hasn't checked that out yet, thefrugalgirl.com, documenting her adventures, cheerfully living on less. And she's recently started nursing school, which is very exciting that she went back to um, do a lot of college classes and get her nursing degree in her mid-40s as her children have grown up and moved out. And I think that's really fun to hear about how people do start careers at different parts of, of their lives. And so she's very inspiring with that and also got really cool recipes. <laughs> so all good stuff. Yeah, we we like how to money. Uh, the thing is, I don't really, you know, I often listen to these things not for like, here's how you, you know, here's what an index fund is, or here's, you know, what you, know, what you should be putting in your 401k or something like that. I mean, I feel like I've I've got that down, but I like thinking about the philosophy of money because there's so much about it that relates to time. I mean, they're both limited resources and how you can optimize them in different ways and what they can enable when you use them in certain ways. So, you know, although they're obviously trade-offs and sometimes too, that you can spend time or spend money. And, you know, on this podcast, we're often telling people, consider spending money because people often spend their time in ways that, uh, you know, you can't get the time back. I was just thinking about like, I used to be really, really into the fire scene. Like I went through a big fire phase, fire being financial independence, retire early and um, have gradually gotten less excited about the concept. I've also noted that I think a lot of the fire types as the market cooled and inflation went up, got a little quieter. And then I also feel like a lot of them are really big into hardcore real estate investing, which I'm like, that can turn into your whole job and like honestly the kind of job i would hate so it got it's gotten <laughs> You'd a little practice it's gotten, medicine right <laughs> yeah exactly it's gotten a little bit murky for me but i still find the concept interesting yeah i mean that was always the funny thing for me with reading the the fire people because many of them are like yay i've re- you know achieved financial independence i don't have to work anymore and then they work in a way that is very much like you and I work, right? Like people have podcasts or they write books or they hold courses or they you know, have a newsletter or whatever about their life where they're not working. And I'm like, but that's work. It's like yeah, I'm activities working. that are generating income <laughs> are work. Work is not defined as stuff you don't like doing, right? That is not the definition of work. I mean, that's not retirement. That's, you know, you switch careers, which is awesome. But I think that could be a goal for many people, like have enough of a financial cushion that you can switch careers to something you enjoy. Like, I think that's excellent advice, but yeah. that's a little bit different. than <laughs> Total digression. But I tell people I work full time, but I work part time as a physician and part time as a podcaster and writer. And like, then they're like, oh, like, because I think some people would be tempted to just say, oh, I went part time to like work on my podcast. But I know what my calendar looks like. And I do not work part time. <laughs> no, no, not at all. This is, in fact, work. We have a business. <laughs> as does Farnoosh. So she's going to talk to us about a healthy state of panic and her life and her work in general. So we are looking forward to that. Well, Sarah and I are delighted to welcome Farnoosh Tarabi to the program. So Farnoosh, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, happy to. Thank you so much for having me on your show. You and I have known each other for many years, Laura. 
and I have been working in the personal finance advice space for about 20 years. Through that time, I've written books. I host a podcast called So Money. And my latest book is called A Healthy State of Panic, which is part memoir, part guidebook on how fear can be a friend. We've often been told that fear is something we need to fight. And I don't know about you, but I've never really been able to be fearless, like completely fearless. Like the world is a scary place. So it's a more honest take on how fear has been helpful to me and so many other people. And you can too. <laughs> yeah. And you can too. Exactly. All books eventually have to have that. And you can too. Right. In yeah. There. yeah. Yeah. And you have two children, correct? Yes. I have a daughter who's six and my son is nine. Excellent. Excellent. And so you actually are, you're raising kids yourself now, but one of the things you talk a lot about in your book is your own childhood and growing up in an Iranian immigrant family. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how that experience contributed to how you view the world. Mm. My parents taught me to be hyper vigilant. We're not the family that sort of felt like we could just take chances. My parents, just to give them you the background, they immigrated here from Iran in the late 70s with the backdrop of the revolution happening in Iran. Their plan was not to stay in America forever. Their plan was just to come so that my dad could get his education and then they would move back. In the middle of all that, I'm born in Worcester, Massachusetts, and the revolution, and then on top of that, the hostage crisis and so much else going on, they didn't feel like it was an appropriate time to go back. And fortunately, they were able to stay. It wasn't like, oh, let's just stay because we can. They needed to find, my dad needed to find a work sponsor, basically to sponsor his visa and stay. And that was really hard, but one person did. And the rest is history. We never went back to Iran to live my parents have visited. I never actually visited, except when I was very, 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 very young. I don't remember. But all this to say that when they were given the opportunity to stay in America, they really took that as a huge luck, a huge opportunity that they did not take for granted. And as a result, they didn't really push the envelope when they were here. Like They weren't like, okay, let's risk a lot or let's allow our daughter to just kind of like become one with the Americans. You know, they really felt as though they wanted to protect their culture, but also they were scared, you know, that as Iranians in, in America in the 80s, it was not kumbaya, right? It was it was a lot of rejection. And I think like a lot of immigrants for the first time in America, there is a culture clash and they didn't really trust the Western ways of child rearing, you know, like wait, we're going to just drop off our kid at a house and she's going to sleep over all night, like not in her own bed. That was very foreign to them and very uncomfortable. So I wasn't allowed to do a lot of the things that my friends could. Talking to boys on the phone, sleepovers, a lot of socializing stuff I didn't get to participate in that didn't involve you know, parental supervision and things like that. And so they raised me just to be really cautious. And and I think I, in some ways, well, I would have loved to have gone to a few more sleepovers than I did. I do appreciate that they taught me early on that the world isn't going to be always embracing of all the things that you want to do and that you should still work hard. You should get an education. You should have self-accountability. But at the end of the day, you have to prepare for uncertainty, which they were intimately aware of all that. Like they knew that their whole life was so uncertain in the beginning. And so 
things like loneliness and rejection and uncertainty and fearing those things were very much a part of my upbringing. And I think as an adult woman trying to navigate a male-dominated industry like finance, being the breadwinner in my marriage, which is not, you know, as a woman, that's still a foreign role. And all of that, I think, becoming mature, emotionally mature around those fears, I think set me up for success and we can get into it. But I don't look back at my childhood as like, oh, don't feel bad for me. You know, I, yes, I had sort of a more insulated and guarded childhood, but as a result, I got really intimate and I had an early relationship with fear, which helped me as I got older. It there was a sort of there had to be a reckoning at some point. Like my fears interrupted a lot of my childhood. Like I was the kid that would overreact in her fears with her fears. As adults, we can't do that. So we have to find a way to sort of see that fear eye to eye, understand what the wisdom is potentially in that fear, what it wants to protect or help us protect, and then go do the thing. And that's where the book really arrives for readers. It's like, you're afraid. You still want to go do something really exciting or different or uncertain. Here's how you can use your fears and listen to your fears to go still do that thing, but with more confidence because you have understood the fears. You know what the fears want you to protect and how to create maybe a a different roadmap for yourself so that you're going to go do that scary thing, but while still valuing what your goals are and and what's important to you and your risk tolerance. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because, I mean, we hear a lot about conquer your fears or, you know, feel the fear, whatever. And you talk about making fear your friend. So let's talk a little bit about that metaphor. Like when, what does it mean to make fear your friend? It means that you have a relationship as opposed to a combative relationship. You have a relationship where, you know, you're understanding that fear potentially has arrived with a purpose and you're still the adult in the room. You're still in control of this relationship. As adults, I think we undermine our ability to manage our emotions. We think that we are going to be overwhelmed and flooded and sunken by our emotions. Whereas I think, you know, all it takes sometimes is recognizing what the emotion is and deciding what you're going to do with it. What are you going to allow for this fear to like, you're going to give it space, but you are still in control of this relationship. And that's really the friendship, you know, where even in real friendships, like there's a balance of power sometimes, and there's a give and take sometimes. And I think that's important to remember. I'm a journalist. You're a curious person. What I always say is when fear shows up, ask it questions, have a dialogue. That's part of the friendship. Have a conversation. Like, where did you come from? What do you want me to protect? Are you real? Because <laughs> sometimes fears are not, you know, they're fiction, or maybe they're other people's fears that we've decided to, or maybe unconsciously, subconsciously, kind of inherited and allowed to take up space in our lives. These are important things to recognize. And fear is really, I think, sometimes a reflection of who we are, which sometimes our friends are too. You know, who you choose to have as friends, there's a reason for that. And the reason that maybe you have certain fears is because of the way you were raised, your tendencies, your risk tolerances, all of that. So fear tells a story about who you are sometimes. Again, why it's important, I think, to have patience with our fears. Not always. And the book doesn't talk about all the fears, all the times in every situation must honor them. No, we talk about nine different fears that I find typically come up when we are at life's big crossroads 
pertaining to things like money, relationships with our partners and friends and ourselves and our careers. And when you're afraid of things like loneliness or rejection or money or failure or uncertainty, and these are some of the chapters in the book, and fear shows up, I think these are the times when we really do want to face them and befriend them. And again, not because we necessarily have to take them along for the journey, but because maybe there's a moment to stop and realize there is some information that this fear wants to relay to me that can be really, really useful to me. As I'm about to make a high stakes decision, we don't want our decisions to backfire. And fear can sometimes be a compass to help us navigate life's maze. Yeah. And one of those maze aspects, and one that's you don't get into until later in the book, but I know since you're a personal finance expert, let's talk about fears around money. Like, what are some of the most common fears people have about money? And particularly, maybe you can go into some of those that you might have been telling yourself mm-hmm. over the course of your life. I like to talk about the fear of not having enough. This comes up so much in my conversations with people and on the podcast, often people write in like, do I have enough to retire? Will I have enough to buy a house? Will I ever have enough to support my family? I'm thinking about maybe starting one. And sometimes that question and that fear around that question is real. Like It's because you don't make enough and the world is expensive and childcare is expensive. And so when that fear comes up, I think it's legit and it's important to sort of understand, well, what are the holes that I may need to possibly fill? You know, there's just some basic math sometimes that has to equate. <laughs> so if certain things cost certain things and you're not making enough and you want for those things, then it's, it's a matter of either adjusting how much you make or your approach to what you're paying for and maybe changing some of your goals. And, and that's a personal decision. But when that fear shows up, sometimes it is a real fear and it's because of just the economics of the world that we live in. But often I find that when we fear this not having enough, it's pointing at something much deeper. The fear really wants you to maybe take a step back and realize that you're focused exclusively on income and the cost of things and not also recognizing the other assets that you may have that in their totality make you rich. Or you would maybe think twice about, do I have enough? Because I, for example, lost my job in 2009 during the recession. And I definitely had a lot of these fear musings like, oh my gosh, you know, how am I ever going to afford anything anymore? I've lost my income. And I was afraid of not having enough to pay my mortgage. I was afraid of not having enough to cover my gap in employment. Who knows when I'm going to find another job? And What I find is that when we have the fear of money, it's often dovetailed with the fear of uncertainty. Money and uncertainty, they're sort of like these two peas in a pod. And one of the exercises in the book about when you're fearing financial uncertainty around sort of challenge in your life is to do this inventory of all these assets that you have that go beyond money, that are rich. And in that moment in 2009, when I lost my job, I can't go back and beg for my job, although I would have, although they wouldn't have given it back to me. I couldn't get back my my title, my income, my health insurance. I could not reverse the subprime mortgage debacle, none of that. So when you have the fear of financial uncertainty, the fear wants you to protect your sense of control. So what can you control? What can you leverage in your life that is a tool, is an asset to get you to the next place with more confidence. And for me, it wasn't necessarily money, although I had a little bit of savings, but mostly it was my ability to 
strategize. I was creative. I had a body of work. I had a book recently that I'd written, which was a platform that I hadn't really given. I haven't really looked at it like that until really I was in this moment of having to re-strategize. I had a network of relationships, professional and personal that could help me. I had my mental health. I had a support system. These are not little things. And in their as you combine them and as you look at them and you reflect on them, you're like, oh my God, I can actually maybe do some things that previously scared me, but now I know I have I have a backup, I have a system. And so for me, the next best move, financial move, wasn't to try to find a full-time job. They didn't exist at the time, actually. Sometimes the best decisions are the ones that are made for you. I was like, I'm going to freelance and I'm going to hustle and I'm going to offer myself up as a consultant and as a contributor. And I'm going to envision ideas for other companies and pitch them. And I didn't score home runs all the time, but I got enough home runs. And those revenue streams ultimately created a business for me. Later that year, I incorporated. And so, you know, all this to say that when you're fearing financial uncertainty and what if and what if and will I have enough, I think it's important to take inventory, not just your financial hard assets, like your savings and your investments, but also these other intangible things that are priceless that can be tools for you in stepping into your next opportunity that are certain. Like you can lay me off, but you can't lay me off for my ambitions. You can't lay me off for my all the my Rolodex of friends and and professional network that will be there for me no matter what. When everything is and that's an assignment for all of us listening. Like imagine you do hit rock bottom. What are the things that that endure? the assets, the resources that remain. I mean, I interviewed somebody in the book who was a victim of Bernie Madoff's billion-dollar Ponzi scheme. And so she was left with zero savings, all her money and her husband's money gone from a phone call that they got. Like, you're just done. And she's like, I went through, she went through all the grief and all things, but she was like, I'm focused exclusively on what I've lost. I need to focus on what I have still. Absolutely. And that included her home, but also, you know, she was a writer and she'd written many good books and she was like, I'm going to write again because I know that's going to be my way out of this. I got to just start writing. And she actually wrote about her experience being swindled and all of that and eventually recouped some of the money and like, but her work in that fear of like, oh my God, doom and gloom was I'm going to have to focus on what I can control what has endured and what I can still leverage so that I can get out of this. Cause nobody wants to stay stuck. That's not mm. what the fear wants you to do. The fear wants you to protect yourself, which means getting out there and doing something else to move on and find success somewhere else. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick ad break and then we're going to be back with Farnoosh hearing a little bit more about women and money in particular. This podcast is brought to you by the new film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn and with an incredible ensemble cast that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, Whoopi Goldberg, Rose Byrne, Rain Wilson, and Vera Farmiga, along with newcomer William A. Fitzgerald. The film is an endearing and often funny story about Max, a divorced father and stand-up comedian living with his father and struggling to co-parent his autistic son Ezra. 
When forced to confront difficult decisions about the future, Max and Ezra embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Ezra is an endearing and often funny exploration of a family determined to find their way through life's complexities with humor, compassion, and heart. Deadline calls the film a touching testament to the power of love. IndieWire says it's funny and moving. And according to Next Best Picture, Ezra approaches autism with heart and authenticity. Only in theaters nationwide, May 31st. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Thrive Cosmetics. I am a speed demon when it comes to my makeup routine. I have approximately five minutes, or maybe three, between showering and starting my routine of getting the kids out the door for school. And so I'm always looking for products to keep things super streamlined and easy for my everyday look. Thrive Cosmetics for years has been part of that. I've discussed the Brilliant Eye Brightener before, which is a serious workhorse for making me look more awake. But lately, I'm also super into their Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. It's a tubing mascara that lengthens lashes and is super easy to remove as well, which is key because my makeup removal routine is just as streamlined. You can feel great about shopping at Thrive because for every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. So refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash bestof. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash bestof, B-E-S-T-O-F, for 10% off your first order. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby, who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and Roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. All right. Well, I am back with Farnoosh Tarabi, who is the author of the brand new book, A Healthy State of Panic, which is about leveraging your fears to achieve success. But before Farnoosh wrote that book many years ago, she also wrote a book called When She Makes More, which is about women breadwinners. So this is a fear as well. I think a lot of people are still very uncomfortable with the idea of women being breadwinners in relationships. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, like why people have that fear. Because I know it's something that a lot of listeners of this show have been dealing with. Yes, yes. And I include some of those stories in the new book, A Healthy State of Panic. Those were coming up a lot for me as I was writing. And and it's true, we fear what we don't understand. We fear what we don't know. And even in 2023, as we've evolved and relationships of all shapes and sizes, you know, there's still a lot of 
resistance to this idea of a woman making more than a man in their relationship. And a Georgetown study recently even concluded that across all gender, race, identity, men, women, everyone's uncomfortable. Like most people are like, wait a minute, huh? How does this work? And again, because we haven't been exercising this much, you know, this is a new phenomenon. The traditional model, the economic model in a male-female relationship is such that he makes more. And that's what we have become that's what we have trusted for so long. That's what sort of our society has built around for so long. And so it is a new thing. And I think that for men and women who are in this dynamic, they may have arrived at this without that expectation. In my book, I talk often to women and men who, for those that were extremely challenged by it, it was because maybe they arrived in their marriage expecting the other formula, expecting him to make more. And so there is a lot of fear and the fear is rooted in, can this even work? A lot of fear of rejection, as I also experienced as the breadwinner initially, my mother, my culture as an Iranian American, like this was not culturally normal as it isn't even in America, but especially in the Middle East. And so there was a lot of sort of doubt as far as like, would this even work out for her? And what does this say about my husband and me? And I just thought that it was unfair, but I thought, okay, I got to write about this. But yeah, there's a lot of fear around women breadwinners. And I think it's again, because we're just not used to it. We haven't seen a lot of evidence either as to how this can actually be a thriving relationship, which is partly why I wrote the book. I wanted to identify these successful couples and and talk about how they were working through and thriving with this sort of new economic shift in paradigm. Absolutely. And so, I mean, what do the healthy relationships do? I mean, that, yeah. uh, you know, because I know people have a lot of fears about it. I mean, between women still going to have to do all the household work or that uh, men will feel emasculated. I mean, I know there's a lot of fears of things like infidelity and stuff like that. Oh, sure. It just, yeah. I mean, and so that happens. It, of course it happens, but well, it happens in other couples too. <laughs> but it's just like, I mean, <laughs> how does that wind up being healthy then? What are the habits of those yes. healthy relationships? Well, foundationally, I think couples who are successful in this economic paradigm realize that they cannot attach their contributions in the relationship to their gender expectations. Like we have gender role expectations in in our society to adopt them in your relationship is very dangerous to say that, well, because you're the man, you exclusively have to be the one who makes most of the money. And as the woman, you exclusively are the one who's going to be in charge of all the housework. That's very dangerous for all couples. And I think when you're in a relationship where now she makes more and now she's also expected to do all the housework as well, which happens. You know, we looked at a study that saw that when she makes more, she actually does more housework than a woman who makes less because she's trying to overcompensate in that department. Making more almost makes her feel less feminine sometimes. And it's very psychological. This is a lot of just over the years, generations, eons of like social conditioning. It's really hard to unwire and unwind from that. But recognizing this is really important. If you're finding yourself even subconsciously, consciously falling into these gender roles in your marriage and you're like, but I don't even like to cook or I'm not even, I don't have the time. You know, you have to get really honest about that. And the couples that were most successful 
just did what they were each best at, what they each wanted to do. And if there was leftover that neither one of them wanted to do, they outsourced it, which sounds like a rich couple's problem. But you can outsource a lot for not a lot these days. There's a lot that you can outsource thanks to automations and technology. You can barter with your neighbors and your, you know, if you want to, you can barter childcare, like women would say or men would say, we would swap babysitting nights with our neighbors. And so that gave us like free nights in some ways and didn't cost anything, but you got to get creative. But the bottom line is that foundationally, you cannot assign contribution roles in your relationship based on the gender. And there's a lot we can learn from same-sex couples actually around this because this is not an issue for them. Maybe they have other issues in their relationships, but this is not something that comes up, right? Because how could it? And they literally like I interviewed some same-sex couples, you know, how they devise their to-dos in their relationship comes down to just who wants to do it, who's best at it, who has the time. The other thing that I think is really important to be conscious of is that when you make more, whoever you are in the relationship, that doesn't mean that your time is more important than the other person. And I find this to be a conflict, not just in same couples that make disparate income, where she makes more, he makes more. It's just, you know, we tend to think that, well, if I make more, then I have maybe more of a say in the relationship or my time is more important. Not, I mean, so many times, even just earlier this year, I was in conversation with a, a mom and she's a teacher and her husband works in sales. And so she makes less than he, but she was conflating that with his time is more valuable than mine. And so when we were trying to get together for a mom's night out, she bailed at the last minute because she said, oh, I didn't realize my husband had a meeting tonight. And, you know, I only make a teacher's salary, so I can't really like interfere with his work schedule. And I was like, ooh, yeah, let's... (laughs) I'm sorry, but you're a teacher. You have an incredibly important job. And I would argue more important than someone in corporate sales. Like, yeah. I don't know. I just think that that's, that's an ongoing debate and it's not worth the time to, to decide. Like both of your times are important. And I think together you need to come up with a better way of managing your, managing your calendars, your right? Yeah. Like figuring out ahead of time who is not available on any given yeah, night so that yeah. you can be and, compensated and for that. So I think that, you know, so all that's really important. I think too, recognizing that just because you make less in the relationship or no money, it doesn't mean you cannot be a significant contributor to a relationship because there's so much else that makes the world go around when you're a family unit. Things like food management and taking care of the house and taking care of your social calendar and providing emotional support and like the also like logistical support. And so, thinking about when there are these changes in your relationship in terms of who's making what and you as the person maybe making less or feeling less than, you need to have a conscious conversation and a real plan, a new plan for how each of you is going to contribute in a way where you both feel equally important to the the overall well-being of the family. And that is going to evolve over time maybe. Even within your financial life, if you're making less. It doesn't mean that your financial contributions are less because we earning is just one piece of the pie. There's also the managing of the money. There's the 
conscious spending of the money. There's the investing of the money. And so what I found too in couples that were successful, if like let's say she's making more of the income, he might be the one who is working with the accountant and looking at the monthly budget and they're doing it together, but he's more involved. I think in every household, there is sort of naturally one person who gravitates more to the the money stuff. That doesn't mean the other person's burying their head in the sand, but that person's maybe more of the day-to-day money manager or month-to-month money manager. And that's an important role. In my own marriage, I make more, but my husband's more of the saver. So I use more of my income to pay for our overhead and costs. And I, of course, save and invest. But for my husband, you know, he contributes exclusively to the kids' college funds. He provides the vacation money. And so looking back, like this is stuff that as a couple you want to decide on what would make you feel, what what contributions do you want to make uh, financial in the relationship? You could be more of the saver and then you can look back and go, I helped send our kids to college. It's not a small thing, even as you were the one maybe making less income. So these are the things that I talk about in the book, these sorts of negotiations and plans that you can make within the relationship so that each person feels like an equal contributor, financial contributor, household contributor, emotional contributor, all of it, even though there is this disparate income within the relationship. Got it. So I wanted to pivot more to Farnoosh's life here. I mean, we now know that uh, your, your husband's the saver. You're more of the, you know, you, you're the breadwinner in your household. But let's talk about what a day-to-day life looks like in your, your household these days. So two school-age kids. Yeah. I mean, I can just it. give you the, pl- yeah. the hour by hour. Hour play by, by hour. Play. Sure. Let's hear it. Well, we usually wake up around 7 a.m. We are not super early risers in our house, but 7 a.m. I'm not a morning person. 7 a.m. is even hard enough for me. We get our kids up and we do the whole hour to hour and a half routine of like breakfast, brushing teeth, getting dressed, maybe catching up on some homework. And then we hit the bus. And then from like 8.30 to nine, I do a little bit of emailing. My own. I work from home. My husband also works from home. That's basically always been true, even before the pandemic. Maybe not so much <laughs> as it is now. And plus, we also moved to the suburbs during the pandemic. So we're pretty homebound. I go into the New York City area once or twice a month for some meetings, but primarily at home. And I run a podcast. I do a lot of Zoom calls with clients. And gosh, running errands, loading the dishwasher, like the whole day is just sort of this like a lot of personal and professional in a work day. But basically, I like to get a workout in usually between the hours of 9 and 10 in the morning. And then from 10 till about 4, 4.30, it's a lot of work and calls and podcasting mixed in with like, maybe I'll take a shower. Maybe I'll go pick up some dry cleaning. Maybe I'll, you know, I do a lot of my grocery shopping online. I rarely hit the grocery store anymore unless it's for last minute things. And our kids are at school until about five. We They do an after school program. So we used to have full-time childcare, which for parents who have young kids who are paying for childcare right now, I'm going to tell you there's a, there's a whole world where they go to school and then maybe the school has an after school program and it's public. So that cost goes away. And so that's been hugely helpful for us, which means that I don't have to work like a crazy person anymore to make money to pay for all the things to have my kids be taken care of. And I don't regret, you know, I don't regret like having worked so much when they were littles, littles, but 
I think it has afforded me now the ability to kind of take a little bit of a a step back and not have to do all of the things and be there for my kids when they come home and make dinner, which I like to do. And so when they get home around 5, 5.30, by then they've already done their homework at school. So now we can really just like have dinner and play and they can read and whatever, watch a little TV. That's kind of our evenings. And then I go to bed around 11 because usually between their bedtimes at 11, I'm catching up on some extra emails and things like that. But that's basically it. And now I've launched a book. So it's been a little bit more hectic throwing in like book events into all the mix and some travel. So that's not going to happen every week, but it's been an especially busy fall. Absolutely. So quick question, were you ever scared of or had fears of, I don't know if we like to use scared of, public speaking and flying? (laughs) Those are two that we... They're no, common fears, but you have to do yeah. them, you know, and, and so all the time. Yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a big talk I'm doing at the end of the month and it's a new keynote. So I'm going to be giving it for the first time and I'm always nervous. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think I was actually just talking about this on my own podcast, that having this fear of public speaking, it's not the fear of having the confidence to speak on stage. It's more of the, all the things that I have to be kind of aware of while I'm on stage, my slides, my movement, my delivery, you know. And so to that extent, if I'm afraid of those things, the fear is telling me to prepare as best I can, you know, get there an hour early, scope out the room. I just reached out to the event holder and I said, can you send me a picture of the room? Because I like want to know, am I going to be on a stage? Am I just going to be like, what I just more information is more information. It's never not enough to prepare yourself for that stuff because it just makes, you're setting yourself up more for success. Not to say things could still go wrong, but at least you've done everything you can to prepare. And that's really what fear, that's the gift. You know, that's, it's not like listen to your fears so everything can work out all the time. It's so that you can go and do the thing with more certainty knowing that the world could still upend things, but that you did everything you can. You're on the other side of that experience, knowing that you respected your goals, your values. You you did it with integrity and you did it prepared and you did it maybe even a little bit still scared, but you still did the thing. You still did the thing. You felt the fear and did it anyway. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> as they say. Yeah. All right. Well, for this, this is great. We always end with a love of the week. I can go first to give you a sec to think about it. I am actually wearing some warm, fuzzy socks. And now I realize I really needed to write down the name of what they were. But it always comes back to like Amazon Prime. I swear that, you know, I <laughs> because I go online, I'm like, I'm out of socks. All my socks have holes in them. And I'm like, I would like some warm wool socks. And I go on and I search. And then you know, thanks to the beauty of online reviews, I can tell that there's some pair, some set that's like not very expensive, but has like thousands of five-star reviews. And I'm yes. like, I'm on it. I'm on it. And, you know, they're there the next day and they're, they're great. <laughs> well, the power of the Amazon review, I this is what I'm trying to get everyone to do is like, please leave a review for my book because once I hit a thousand reviews, pe- the book will just sell in perpetuity and yeah, I'll never yeah. have to do another podcast or reel again. Although I would always come back to your podcast. But of course, of my course. favorite well, thing good. this week is, and I encourage everybody to do this. I've been going through some old 
boxes. And I have come across a lot of old photos of myself, of my kids. I just found the sonogram of my babies when they're in my tummy. I showed them this morning. They were like, mom, your tummy is so ugly. I was like, okay, Okay. you're not (laughs) getting it. a sonogram looks like. a sonogram. (laughs) What is going on in your stomach? It's so weird. But I think that that for me has been really special this week. I've framed some of these photos and now they're in front of me. And so, you know, just go through some old boxes, you know, you might enjoy the process and seeing a photo of yourself when you were a little kid. This is an important thing to have at the forefront all the time, because why else are you doing the things that you're doing? If you're ever doubting anything, remember who you were as a kid. Don't let that kid down. If you're worried about public speaking, if you're worried about doing the next thing and taking a chance, like, you know, I always think about myself as a kid and how scared I was and how scared of ever realizing my potential I was. So do it for her, you know, and and sometimes having that actual visual reminder is so helpful and will keep you going. Absolutely. Plus the photos, photos are pretty cute too, right? They're so So, cute. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on for new let our listeners know again the title of the book and where they can find you. Thank you so much, Laura. The book is called A Healthy State of Panic, and you can find it at ahealthystateofpanic.com. I love being on Instagram too. If you want to follow me there at Farnish Tarabi, I slide into my DMs. Lots of fun uh, happening behind the scenes. Lots of fun. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Well, that was awesome. I am a big Farnoosh fan. So, Sarah, this question came in. She said, this listener, maybe we recognize that we might have different opinions on this, says, I'm curious how both of you approached decorating your houses. For any new listeners, Sarah and I both moved in 2022. So we've both been dealing with new house stuff for the past two years or so. She says, did you ever consider professional help or using a decorator? I know you are typically fans of outsourcing, but decorating can end up being a very significant investment, but might also lead to a greater enjoyment of a space. This person just moved and she feels like she is wasting time on thinking about how she might decorate when she doesn't particularly enjoy it, nor does she think she is very good at it. And so she finds it quite stressful. And part of the stress of feeling like her house isn't finished makes her feel like she can't have people over, which is then an opportunity cost in and of itself. So would love your advice. So Sarah, what do you have for her? Yeah. And I'm not saying my perspective is correct. I just want her to think outside of the box of like what might be normal and what might be possible or acceptable. But I have zero interest in this particular category. We do not have a fancily decorated house. Most of our furniture is Ikea. We replace it when it looks so bad that it's like (laughs) we did take a look at the like 15 year old brown futon and we're like, okay, fine. It's fine. We should get another sofa from Ikea to replace it for the next decade or something. But yeah, it's just like not a priority for us. We want to save. We want to spend money on our kids. We want to travel. And to some extent, you can't spend out in every single category, at least not at our income level. And so we are completely happy in surroundings that have enough space and are very comfortable. I don't live in a particularly tiny home. It's like 3,500 square feet or something like that. But it is not decorated in any way, shape or form. However, I have people over all the time and I've never once had someone be like, Ugh, 
your house is like not decorated. <laughs> so I don't want to come or something <laughs> I can't like that. hang out with you, Sarah. <laughs> like, yeah, we had book club yesterday. I mean, we have plenty of space. I have a folding table that I can put a tablecloth if I need a big table. We've had many a party here. In fact, I would say I host more than I get invited to things. Maybe I don't get invited because they're so offended by our house that. <laughs> but I would just push back on the idea that you need like a fancy house, because if, if your friends are going to judge you by like what your home looks like, I mean, and then they're not people I would particularly want to hang out with. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, I have high standards when it comes to being like clean so like i want the house to be organized and not cluttered and like people actually commented yesterday because it had happened to be the day we had our house cleaned anyway wow your house is so clean but nobody said like but the furniture is not stylish <laughs> yes, the furniture is from ikea i can't be friends with you yeah i think that is anyone who said that is not somebody you want to be friends with anyway so i think you shouldn't these are separate questions like can you have people over absolutely you should have people over. I remember we had we had some people come stop by uh, to see our house when we had just moved in. And so everything was like full of boxes. I mean, literally that day, like the movers were like getting stuff out. I had just like given them the tip, like, you know, they were coming over and it's fine. Like if they're your friends, they enjoy your life and they enjoy you. And so, I mean, as long as you have like a chair for them to sit on, like, so if you literally have no furniture, you might want to at least get some folding chairs. But as long as you have a, clean bathroom and somewhere for them to sit. Most people are going to be pleasant enough if they are people you want to have in your life. Now, that is a different question than decorating. I actually think this person is a prime candidate for hiring a designer for precisely what she said. You are spending a lot of money to decorate this house and you want to spend it well. And you are recognizing that other people have an eye for things and you don't. So this is absolutely the situation where you hire a professional. And it's not like you go away and come back and like the whole house is decorated. I mean, it usually doesn't work like that. I mean, maybe some people do that. Like if you're decorating like a vacation home, you plan to rent out and you don't really care what's in it. But if this is your, obviously your primary residence, what it will be is that this person, this designer will show you like three options based on what he or she has decided is your taste. And then you will choose from those three options, right? And that makes it so much easier because you are not choosing from the entire universe of sofas. You are choosing between three sofas, all of which would be excellent, right? So you just choose your favorite from those. Or, I mean, the entire universe of if you're doing a whole house thing, like you're going to be choosing stuff like the pulls on cabinets, like what the faucets look like. I mean, all these things that you have never, ever thought to care about. And it does kind of, you know, there are choices that could probably look more in the way you'd like them to look or less, or, you know, more feel like you want them to look or less. And again, this designer knows all that. They know what knobs are good and, you know, looking at what your taste is. And they will show you three knobs. And then you choose from those three knobs and you find something you are happy with. So, I think in your case, this would actually be a great way to make sure that you are not wasting money on a sofa you then hate or a paint color that isn't what you like or anything like that. That said, different designers get paid different ways. I would suggest looking into somebody who is willing to be paid by the hour because then they're more open as opposed to like a percentage of the budget because some people do a percent of like what you purchase. And usually it comes out about the same because 
they get discounts. Like there's often to the trade discounts for like rugs and furniture and all these for most of the high-end furniture stores. So if they were getting like, I'm just throwing these out. I don't remember what the standard numbers are, but if they were getting 20% of the price, they're often getting between a 15 and 25% discount to the trade anyway. So it's, it's kind of a wash, but the incentive then is to choose slightly more expensive items versus if you were getting paid by the hour, then it's the same to you if it's a relatively inexpensive couch versus a more expensive couch. And so they won't automatically feel like even if they're not consciously doing it, there's always the incentive to have slightly more expensive stuff. So I would just think, you know, it can go either way and you're probably going to get something great regardless if you ask friends for recommendations, whatever. But just throwing that out there as a possibility if you're looking for slightly more budget-friendly furniture pieces. Totally makes sense. And yeah, I think if you care about it, I totally agree with Laura. I just, I don't know, like, make sure you care about it. Like, I would totally hire a designer for clothing because I care more. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. We all have different things we care about. Or even just, you know, you may not care about it, but sometimes in tough real estate markets, if you're trying to sell a house, like staging it, can really help and you know so you have to yeah but if you're gonna live in a house for 10 years and you're like hiring someone to decorate it i mean most people are not hiring it because they plan on moving out in two years so i i did see you write that and i'm like "Mm," because like by the but that's not this person i'm just saying like you know you even somebody who doesn't care about it might you know that's a situation where you might look into it right if you're trying to sell something relatively yes yes all right well this has been best of both worlds i was interviewing farnoosh tarabi about her brand new book, A Healthy State of Panic. We will be back next week with more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.